Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. So we are here at the top of the episode, and we wanted to just remind you that our book is coming out in just a few weeks. February 25th in the United States and in the UK. And everywhere else as well, I understand. I'm not sure about that. All right, we'll get back to you about that. Anyway, February 25th, you can pre-order it now, wechoosethefuture.com, which has been very exciting. Uh, We've been spending quite a bit of time promoting the book and talking about it, getting excited for the launch. And we have been sharing with you quotes from friends and allies um, at the top of the episode. So this week, I'm going to read you one from our good friend, Naomi Klein, author of The Shock Doctrine and more recently, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And she says, Figueres and Rivik Karnak lay out the stakes of the climate emergency in the clearest possible terms, but they don't stop there. They dare to tell us how our response can create a better, fairer world. And they help us to think through many of the shifts needed to get us there. Thank you very much, Naomi. We appreciate the support. We choose the future.com. Hope you go and pre-order the book. All proceeds, we should point out, from the pre-order period go to the Greenbelt Movement for Planting Trees in Africa. So now's your chance to do that. Paul? And if you order online, they will actually deliver to anywhere in the world. So don't worry too much about oh, yes. what country you're in. The internet happens <laughs> everywhere, doesn't it? Okay, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Ravikarnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we reflect on what happened at Davos 2020. We talk about the remarkable progress of the school strikes over the past year. And we speak to Luisa Neubauer, activist and author. 23-year-old activist and author. Remarkable human being. That's the very interesting part. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here. So, Christiana, Tom, how are you two? Well, we had a very interesting evening last night. We had what we could call maybe a dinner to soft launch the upcoming book, which will be published on February 25th. But in London, we did a soft launch dinner. And who was there, Tom? Oh, it was very fun. So this is these are our sort of... You know, our, our warm-up laps as authors, really, which is still a slightly uncomfortable fit, but we're thoroughly enjoying it before the future we choose comes out in a few weeks. And so we had this amazing dinner that was put on by our wonderful publishers at Bonnier. Uh, and this launch was at the RSA, the Royal Society for the Arts in London. And we had maybe 50 people for dinner and David Attenborough. Mm. who is above and beyond all humanity. Uh, above and beyond all humanity. Um, our colleague Marina actually went down to Richmond to collect him just to be in his presence for half an hour in the car <laughs> off from Richmond. Um, but it was wonderful. He spoke and, you know, obviously he is just amazing. And what was lovely about the evening is um, we had like four or five speakers. So Tom Crowther, the um, the academic who came up with the idea of a trillion trees, was there. He spoke. Our good friend Nigel Topping, just appointed high-level climate action champion, spoke. And uh, a few other people. And everyone sort of spontaneously started their speeches about how really everything comes back to David and how, you know, as children, we kind of got inspired and woken up to the the magic of the of the natural world by him. So it was just the most amazing way to sort of bring our book into the, the public domain and a kind of um, precursor for what's to come in the next few weeks when we launch the book properly. But, you know, Tom, what I thought was um, so interesting is the tone of Sir David's intervention, because you will remember that the three of us interviewed him. Well, how many months ago was that? That like, was like six months ago. 
was it more? No, it was like at the really? beginning of the podcast, so like May last year. Okay. Yeah. And and he wasn't exactly high on the optimistic scale then. No. Mm. Um, and last night he started by saying he fundamentally feels, believes and thinks that there is a a tipping point here mm. that he used to be pretty despondent about the fact that we have destroyed, as he calls it, the Garden of Eden, and that no one really cared. And last night he says, actually, I am seeing that people do care. Yeah, and he was clearly so thrilled by it, right? He was like, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, no one cared. Now everyone cares. And this conversation is everywhere. So it just seems really energizing for him. Thank goodness that he, yeah. he saw he lived to see this. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, he's going he's to live way beyond you and me. And you know? I have no <laughs> doubt about that. He has more energy than I do. So. Paul, Tom and Christiana will long be gone. And Sir David will still be here with that magical Sheer voice. popularity carrying him forward to yes, totally. into the 22nd century. Um, but, but, you know, I... I think that his note, his tone, um, that things have changed, uh, also reverberates the tone in Davos, where we just came from, right? Great Last point. week, yeah. we spent a week in, in Davos for those who pronounce it in English, and Davos for those who pronounce it in, <laughs> in French. And what was really both fun to watch and concerning at the same time is that most people went to the World Economic Forum and found themselves at the World Climate Change Forum. (laughs) And, you know, I I delighted in their faces of surprise. Um, But the reason for that is not necessarily positive, right? The reason for that is that... uh, unsurprising to us and certainly to most of our listeners, the survey, the risk survey that the World Economic Forum does every year just before they start their meeting in Davos, for this year, for the very first time, places environmental issues as not the top one or two, as the top five risks to the global economy. And this is the very first time, right? This was the 50th anniversary of the WEF. I believe they've been doing this survey actually only for two decades. But this is the very first time that in that survey, it is unequivocal that it is the environmental issues, both local and global, or first global and then local, that are the highest risks to economic growth and economic stability. And the conversation in in Davos really reflected that. Totally. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, Christiana, but I remember Davos before um, before Paris. And there was this sort of single-pointed focus on, are we going to get a deal? We have to get a deal. It's really important. Now, obviously, everybody's thinking about Glasgow and wants Glasgow to be successful and wants to do what they can to make it successful. But it's more an everyone everywhere type of conversation. I mean, the conversation isn't so much governments are going to make a plan and solve this or increase ambition. It's Corporates are stepping up and increasingly in this amazing kind of arms race. I mean, we talked previously about Amazon on this podcast and now Microsoft has stepped forward and said not only they're going to be um, climate neutral, but they're going to remove all of the emissions from the, since the beginning of the company. So it feels more like an everyone is doing everything they can and coming together to do this, which is what it needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And um, I think the other thing that I observed in, um, in Davos is a broadening of participation of many sectors that were sort of on the sidelines and now are stepping in. 
Um, and I reference here the conversations with the CEO of Gucci, who has, you know, really stepped forward. The fashion industry is the second highest emitting industry after fossil fuels. That's, That's amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when, when you have a company uh, of a, a luxury brand, not just a fashion industry representative, but a luxury brand like Gucci, actually really understanding that their corporate future depends on their responsibility on climate, yeah. you know that things have changed. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, it's really quite, uh, quite exciting. And as we've been saying all along, right, 2020 is it. Mm. We have to be able to, uh, to change the course that we're on in, in this year and in this decade. So, you know, we just barely squeezed it in because as far as I can tell, every time I look at the calendar, it does say 2020. Yeah. So we better just get on with it. But apparently we're starting to do so. So hallelujah. And very well organized. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Christiana. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, Tom, uh, that uh, Christiana's friend and our former colleague, Nigel Topping, has got this job, a high-level climate action champion. And his job is, is moving towards the COP meeting, uh, along with a whole bunch of other people, getting businesses, investors, organizations and cities engaged with the summit. And, um, you know, I was, I was actually um, listening to the, um, to the artist, the musician Brian Eno, and uh, he was talking about the concept of genius. He said, you look back in, in history, people like uh, composers, I don't know, Stravinsky or, or, or artists like Picasso, we call them geniuses. But he thinks that they're representatives of a whole scene that's going on. Mm. And he talks about senius, not genius. Mm. And I feel that there's, oh, there's, there's an awful, uh, an enormous, uh, a wonderful, awful British, uh, awfully good. Uh, there's, a, there's an enormously good, <laughs> an enormously good. That was peak Englishness, Paul. <laughs> peak Englishness. <laughs> awfully, dreadfully nice, Tom. You're awfully kind. No, no, no I mean, in a, in a, in a global way, um, a really, you know, this great richness comes. To, uh, to climate change, and yeah. again, that's incredibly exciting. Well, you know, the other thing that um, that Tom and I noticed last week, Paul, um, is I, I don't know if you remember, but last Davos, exactly a year ago, was the first time that Greta Thunberg really took the microphone in any public way, and it was her well, that first. Was, that was at the UN summit just before, right? But it was in Davos that all the attention was yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and she took the microphone in, in, in Davos and really, you know, spoke her mind yeah. uh, to the captains of industry. And, and, and that basically, you know, skyrocketed her, um, the, her attention in the eyes of the public media and, and, and the public at large. And what I thought was a really beautiful development this year is, of course, she was there, but so were other young leaders from other countries, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, there were young leaders from Germany, from Brazil, from Uganda. Norway, from Uganda. Um, and and it, was, it was really quite beautiful to see that this is not a one-person movement at all. This is really what, what I think the, the magic that she has... Uh, rot is she has really sparked uh, the the and the the anger that many young people had been feeling even before 
she came to Davos last year. Um, and many of them have been active before. And now they just feel finally very empowered to use their own voices and speak things the way that they feel without necessarily being compared to her. But the space has been opened for the young generation, let's say under 25, to speak to these issues because they really do understand that this is about their entire lifetime, right? And um, and and one article that I read in uh, while I, while I was there that really impacted me said that a child born in 2012 or any year thereafter has not lived a single day without some impact of climate change hitting somewhere in the world. So those children slash young people really understand that their entire life is now irretrievably changed by by climate change. And they're speaking up and it is absolutely fantastic. So, so one other thing that happened in Davos that was very unfortunate, but it has really raised the profile of a remarkable leader is this very sorry story of Vanessa Nakate, who uh, was photographed with the other um, young leaders from the Fridays for Future movement, including Greta and Luisa Neuberger, who we speak to this week, and then was subsequently edited out of the photograph by Associated Press, who then put circulated the photograph everywhere of the white Caucasian women who are leading this and editing out the African on the end of the line. And there is absolutely correctly been a massive outcry about this. Um, I believe there has been apology from Associated Press as well, but of course it's unforgivable. Sorry, there has been an explanation, but not an apology. Oh, is that correct? Yes, Jesus. an explanation. Okay. Not, and apparently the apology is going to be delivered in person to her, but there has been no public apology which makes matters even worse. Even worse, even worse. No, absolutely appalling. But, I mean, if there is any small silver lining to it, not that it can ever be excused, it has massively increased her profile, and she's amazing, and she's doing fantastic work. So that's a small outcome, I suppose, but totally unacceptable. I mean, I have to say, just looking both at Davos and the point you made there about the collective leadership, as well as sort of a broader reflection on the last year, I, I consider myself to be a reasonable student of political strategy and getting systems to do what you want them to. But I am in awe of Greta's political strategy abilities. I mean, she just seems to be have this incredible instinct for taking a path that increases the focus on the issue, that fosters collective leadership, that absorbs these kind of hits and makes her stronger for them, which is amazing as we've seen as people have kind of come after her. My, my favorite one from Davos you probably saw was Steve Mnuchin, the US Treasury Secretary, gave a speech in which he said, you know, who is she? When she goes and studies economics, then, you know, then she can come back and talk to me. And, you know, Greta, of course, just just absorbs it and points out the truth as she always does. And a few days later, Mnuchin's wife comes out and says, actually, we don't need to do that in order to understand what's necessary. I stand with Greta. You know, it's just another, and these, these sorts of things, her ability to sort of have grace under fire seems to absorb these shocks and make the whole movement stronger. And it's fabulous to see. Yeah, well, don't get me started on economics. I mean, that's, you know, it's it's a kind of a form of unlearning. You know, you focus on essentially financial flows. And the more you focus on them, the more you blinker every single other aspect of consideration. And uh, it was EF Schumacher that, who, who said that actually you just have to say something's not economic 
and then its right to existence is is completely gone. You yeah. know, Central Park, it's not economic. You know, bulldozer it, build flats. Uh, you know, the 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 uh, concert hall. You know, oh, it's 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 you know, it's not economic. Close it down, and um, we forget that 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 you know, nature. You know, we're, we're not. You know, what, I, I remember I asked you, uh, Christiana, once. What was the, the business case for Costa Rica keeping um, so much biodiversity? And you explained that right across the whole economy, that actually powered the strength of the nation and supported it. Um, but there is also a sort of divine right to life. So actually, that reminds me of something David said last night. We were having a discussion around the table about different technologies, and he was very interested in in capturing carbon from the air. And and someone made the point that, you know, the technology was coming on, it was still somewhat expensive. And he was so gentle about it. He said, well, of course, the price could be infinite. It's still worth doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's what David Attenborough actually said about... Uh, young people he said they have clear sight yes and uh that's the you know i mean greta's uh you know i have not met her but her her skill set is clearly infinite but at the center of this giant collection of skills i would put clear sight up top Hmm. speaking of clear sight we had the uh, wonderful opportunity uh, last week in in davos to speak to one of these clear sighted young leaders, most of whom are women, by the way, which I think is also yeah. very, very interesting and, and deserves another another conversation about why that is so. We spoke to uh, Luisa from Germany, who is 23 years old. She is a published author of a best-selling book on climate mm-hmm. um, in Germany. And uh and, and she's an activist uh, at the same time. And um, she thinks of herself more as an analytical person and as a, as, as a thinker and as an author um, than as an activist. But she has concluded that she actually needs to do both. Mm. And, uh, and the story that she shared with us of her very strategic activism uh, in Germany to stop an Australian coal mine from being opened is actually very inspiring. And you will all be thrilled to hear how far she has come in that. Absolutely. It's a wonderful conversation. Let's hear it. Great. Let's hear the interview. Lisa, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to join us on the Outrage and Optimism podcast and as I tell all of our guests here, the, the title is because we think that we need both the outrage about what is not happening or what is going too slow, but we also need some optimism to get us out of that rut uh, and on to the action that needs to occur. We're going to be very interested to hear how you, how you balance those or where you come out. If you're out on one extreme or the other, that's fine too. We're just totally interested uh, in, in seeing your handling of both of those sentiments that, uh, that are out there. Um, but let us start by saying, first of all, that Tom and I just had the pleasure of meeting you just yesterday, um, I think almost by chance, Indeed. up at the Arctic Base Camp, uh, where my feet were completely frozen. I don't know about your feet. They were pretty cold. They were pretty cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for, um, for being courageous enough to come up and share with us um, a, a very important dilemma perhaps or balancing act that you are dealing with uh right now you have been very vocal uh against 
Siemens helping uh, develop the technology that is necessary to move forward with the Adali coal mine in Australia. Uh, and I was really quite impressed and, and delightedly uh, surprised that um, the Siemens CEO actually approached you. I, honestly, I think that speaks very highly of him um, and asked you to consider coming on the board. So why don't you tell us that story? Uh, why don't you start with why did you pick that particular issue? Because in climate change, there are a thousand and one issues. Why did you pick the Adani coal mine, the Siemens involvement in the Adani coal mine, um, and how did it come to it that you got a call from the CEO of Siemens? Yeah, happy to. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I am part of the Fridays for Future movement in Germany, um, and as we are a global movement, we are uh, quite connected, so we, um, we work globally too. So for um, just over a year, I've been climate striking weekly and I've been organizing and doing lots of things that you do when you're a climate activist and some things that you apparently don't do when you're a climate activist, but I did them anyhow. Like what? Uh, like writing a book. Yes. That's chapter two of this conversation. <laughs> okay, we keep that for now. So, um, and uh, that's been a really, um, a really um, wild year and... Um, a lot of things have happened that I've never expected. Um, for instance, there was one point where on a single day in Germany, uh, 1.4 million people went on the streets Amazing. to protest um, for, for climate protection, which has never happened before in the country. And um, other things happened I never expected. For instance, just the very day that we had 1.4 million people on the streets, our government basically said no to the Paris Agreement um, by really passing through some laws that are so weak you can't even call them climate laws. What I learned, maybe one of the most important lessons from one year of really intense climate activism, is that change isn't linear. So um, really to, to get things done, to reach those crucial social and political tipping points, um, there's no point in waiting for the strategic moment when all the things that you kind of envisioned were suddenly work out and Align you, you get there. Yes. yes. So that doesn't happen. So what we need are these points where different like dynamics crash together in some nice, chaotic, unexpected way. <laughs> and then you pick them up and you make the most out of it. Mm. This is from, from my experience, at least, uh, when things can actually turn right. out to be successful. And I think with the Siemens case, it was some kind of chaotic, unlinear tipping point that we reached. Um, many probably know about the Adani coal mine, which is like one of the most um, damaging coal mines in the world. And if it goes through as planned, it not only threatens the 1.5 target, but the two degree target. So when they actually get all the coal out of that mine. So uh, what is clear from a climate perspective, this coal, this coal mine can't, you know, open up. That's, that's as simple as that. And so for eight years, activists in Australia have been campaigning against this coal mine um, and the hashtag of Stop Adani. A lot, actually more than 60 companies so far, have openly stepped back from this project, like the Deutsche Bank, like Allianz, um, big names, um, who said, look, we are not going to get involved in this, but there are other companies who are still involved. 
Mainly the financial sector, right? It's Stepped really away. about yes. Who it's really fund it? the financial yeah. sector. Yeah, they said and we're not going to fund it. Large investors and large insurances insurances said exactly. we are going to get involved. Exactly. Yet there were other companies who were still involved, um, and this was Siemens. So, Lisa, sorry, can you just repeat what was the or what is the planned intended involvement of Siemens? Oh there? yes. So actually, it's 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 minor. What Siemens does, they build some technologies used for the railway that then. Uh, transports the coal from the mine to the harbor. So for this railway, it's 200 kilometers. Which to, hasn't been built yet. Which hasn't been built yet. Um, important for that to know is the actual investment of Siemens is just 18 million US dollars. It's uh, 80 million euros, I think. It's not that much. It's hmm. for Siemens, it's peanuts. But the other two companies in Australia who could provide such technologies have declined to cooperate on this project. So it is really a thing where Siemens plays a special role. And is Siemens the only other company that can do it? Or are well, there others? As, as, as today, as we know of, in Australia, it's just them three and two of them have, have stepped away. Said, yeah. So we are down to Siemens here. And... Um, Obviously, no, it's not just this whole project doesn't go back to Siemens. You know, you, you should talk to the Australian government who, who subsidizes the project, the Adani company itself. Mm. All of that obviously play a crucial role. But as I said, change isn't linear. So at that point that people were looking at Siemens, the CEO of Siemens in December had said, oh, I wasn't aware of this. We would check what investment this is. So people had been tweeting him and then he said, okay, I'll look into it. And this was a moment when we were like, okay, wait, this is a this is a German CEO. Um, he he comes from Bavaria. We should really look into this, and really should we should really help out our Australian friends here because obviously some things have moved already. So then we started tweeting like crazy, and um, I wrote an op-ed in a in a large newspaper together with a friend explaining why what this is about, why we're looking at Siemens, and why we expect more from Siemens. I think it's a an interesting fact that Siemens is actually one of those companies who say they want to be climate neutral by 2030. So we think, wait, how can you be climate neutral by 2030 when you invest in a coal mine or in a coal project that intends to dig that coal for 60 years until 2080? So that doesn't add up. So we are really critical on this and we wrote to the CEO, Joe Kays, on everything. And funnily enough, he got back to us and emailed me and said, look, uh, maybe we should talk, which was uh, obviously itself an incredible ge gesture. I've never uh, spoken to a CEO of that company size before. So we met in Berlin and I took this friend along. And so we were sitting there and um, the four of us on the table, him mentioning that he would, in that very hour that we would meet, I think Siemens would earn such something like 50 million euros just in the hour it took. Um, so there was quite an imbalance in the room. Um, and uh, <laughs> That's not your usual hourly rate? It's not, it's not really what I get per hour. <laughs> and we had coffee and we talked about the Adani case and we, we kind of pointed out why we are being so mad at him for this. The, the situation is quite clear. This coal mine can't open up. And every single company that is invested in it is somewhat responsible for this whole project to run in the first place. Right. So we are holding every single company that's involved accountable, especially the ones who are talking about the climate crisis, like they understood what is, what's going on. 
there are many companies who are doing really bad stuff. Mm. They might not care. But for starters, for the ones who state they care and for the ones who really use this in, in, in a publicity and a marketing kind of way too to say we are helping to protect the planet, we expect them to live up to their promises. And uh, Siemens could do that. After mm. all, it's a tiny investment. So we explained this and then he said, look, I thought about this a bit and I have an offer to make. And we were like, yeah, get out of Adani. <laughs> and we're sitting there getting really excited. And then he said, look, Luisa uh, or Miss Neubauer, um, I would uh, offer you to, uh, to join a board of Siemens Energy, a soon-to-be-found company, a daughter company of Siemens. I was like, and I, 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 I thought I misunderstood him because I expect him to make an announcement about a, a coal mine. Yes, and uh, and uh, I mean, I'm 23, and, uh, and there are lots of things on my agenda right now. But on the do list, being on a board of a, a large energy company isn't really, you know, something I. Uh, you hadn't considered myself, before, uh, not quite. So yeah, that was interesting. And I was sitting there, and he said, "Okay, um, you don't have to say anything now," which I was glad about because I had no <laughs> idea what to say about this. So that was obviously a very, very smart thing for him to say because afterwards he went to do press statements. We did too, obviously. And he would say, look, I offered Luisa Neubauer this job. And the press was, ah. Of course. Of He's course. the champion. So big on it. And he was really nice. And then some, take, some said, oh, he played me out. Some said he just wanted to buy me in. He wanted to greenwash. Mm. I didn't... Um, well agree on any of that i just thought i wouldn't want to say anything about it like what he intended to do what i saw was like a very severe offer and afterwards he also explained that he was being serious about it and uh, yes so what do you do when you're a 23 year old climate activist and you spend all your days trying to get something done with the planet and then you get offered a position and a very in a very influential position in one of the largest companies um in that sector what do you do? And uh, so that's what I, uh, I started thinking about it. And I, I called them and I said, did you mean it like? And like, did you actually mean it? And they're like, yes. And we would like to have talks soon and stuff. And um, I declined. And I said, um, I looked into what my, what my obligations would be. And it turned out once I would be on this board, I couldn't comment up on Siemens independently. So I would be mm -hmm. really have to be in like work in favor and act in favor of the um, company and uh, that didn't align with what I want to do mm. I want to really get something done in, in case of the climate crisis and for that I need to be as independent as it gets and be able to uh, finger point at those who are part of the problem and right now, amongst others, it is investments like the Siemens one in Adani. But what I said is I made the offer that my seat could be taken by a scientist, by a climate scientist who would actually know what's going on. Because I felt if a, a company like Siemens, without thinking it through, because I admitted it was a mistake, if that happens in a company of that size, that they don't think investments through and don't overthink what they do in the context of the Paris Agreement, something, you know, there's some capacity lacking, obviously. So that was, my offer was declined then too, sadly enough. 
Why? What reason did they give for declining? Um, well, they said they don't lack experts. They have enough experts. Mm. Um, so where is the conversation about their support of the mine now? Well, Has it moved? Then they said they would think about it and they said they would stick to it. Because it's a contract that has been signed and for a company like Siemens, it's important to be accountable in terms of, you know, those contracts. You want to be reliable. That is true. But the one big misinterpretation of this argument is, as of today, when we combine all the contracts on fossil fuel projects there are, and we, put them, we add them up, we are way beyond two degrees. We are, we, we, we've lost the Paris Agreement. So what we know today is that some of those contracts for 1.5 or even two degrees have to be cancelled. So we really need to overthink the promises that we made in terms of fossil fuel projects, not wanting to like tear companies apart in that sense, but just because the maths tells us to. And uh, Siemens would have been a start here. Um, and I, I honestly, I don't want to believe that there's bad intention behind like Siemens being so so responsive. And I think, great, maybe we are getting to a point where some of those companies, some of the large ones, some of the large players are waking up and uh, trying to do what they feel is possible. And I think it's our job now to tell them that this isn't enough, but to also open up the conversation to what is beyond hmm. the status quo. Well, I think the story is really fascinating, uh, Luisa, because it, it points to several several things. First, I, like you, I do not doubt the sincerity of Siemens' leadership um, because they have given proof in other sectors that they're really serious about their commitment uh, on climate change. And what your story really evidences is that even if there is true, sincere commitment at the leadership level, it doesn't always trickle down to all the levels of people who make decisions. And that is a tough thing for a CEO to do, right? Because uh, they, they have their convictions and very often CEOs that I've spoken to come to this conviction because of conversations with their children, which I think is very interesting. Um, and then they go out to the public because they want to be held accountable. But the trickle-down effect to all of the different you know, points and levels in the hierarchy that make decisions hasn't quite occurred yet and has to, right? Today I was asked by someone, well, you know, what's the role of a climate change unit in a company? I said, there should not be a climate change unit, right? Because it has to be so much a part of the, uh, of the corporate identity, of the corporate culture, that it just permeates every single decision, no matter what. But that's not where we are right now. So I think your story is a very, very important story of the difficulties of this trickle-down and permeation. The other thing that I think your story points to is a very important recognition from industrial leadership about the clarity of the voice of youth 
And I also think the sincere wish and desire to listen and to pay attention to that. Um, and I think that is a huge compliment to you. So I would take it very much as a compliment that there is, you know, that there was this offer that maybe it's still on the table, that there is at least still a conversation. And I wouldn't close the door to the fact that they may still figure out how to change this yeah. decision, right? right. And, I think, the, and I think one really important thing you pointed out earlier when we when we met in the gondola on the Davos Mountains, <laughs> and it really got me thinking is, um, and it's, it's actually, you know, after... I, I considered this for a while and I talked to so many people, but nobody had mentioned that before, that companies in that size and that in that power position uh, could, you know, change in a way that the way they work is more in line with the way the world works and what the planet needs from us. And uh, having young people in those positions who ideally, you know, do a good job, <laughs> um, could mm -hmm. really this could really be a, a new a new standard absolutely yeah. and in that sense i think the fact that this, the ceo of siemens really came up to us and invited us is really it's also sets a high, high bar for everyone else who is now going to be involved in the dialogue here and the discussion on climate absolutely i to i totally agree with you on that and and it leads me to uh, to another point which is to a certain extent you can follow the logic that when a company comes to Siemens to says, we need a technology for a train track that hasn't been built yet, they don't necessarily connect the dots, right? That, that manager could have said, oh, well, this is a fantastic opportunity, you know, to sell our technology to a track. Your impressive role is to connect those dots for them and say, whoa, 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 this is not just the sale of a technology that starts here with your technology and ends with the sale. There are ramifications that go way beyond the limited consideration of one sale or one contract. And that is sadly not the way that some companies or most companies think. So with the authority of your voice to connect those dots for them, right? And to say, this is not just a contract in and of itself. There are huge consequences to that contract. That, I think, is a power uh, and a clarity that is very necessary right now. Yeah, absolutely. We need more of that. And maybe um, we see where we get... I'll, I'll up yet update you on that, but maybe we find a way around this to make sure there is more dot connecting going on because that's something I think we need on a global scale anyway. Totally, yeah. totally, absolutely. We have to understand that all of this is interconnected, yeah. right? We're so used to thinking in silos, yeah. right? This is over here, this is over here, and, and we're not connecting the dots and seeing the consequences of one decision in one silo on, the, on all other silos. Yeah. So that interconnectedness of... All decisions of all nature, of all living beings, of human beings with nature, that interconnectedness is, we're so blind to it, so blind. And that's the role that, and Christiana's been saying this, but, you know, the value, it's a very smart move because for them, the value of having you there, that's a huge risk to them. They don't want to be in this position for this tiny contract in Australia that they're now somehow ended up making the terrible decision to continue to focus on. But having somebody there who's joining those dots and can pick those things before it gets to that point is hugely advantageous to them from a corporate perspective mm -hmm. as well, right? Of course. Yeah. 
I'd love to ask you before we let you go, because our listeners may not know that you are actually a best-selling author oh. in Germany. And your book, sadly, is not in English. I'm blushing here. Right? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I, I am very sad your book's not in English because I'd love to read it. Um, can you just introduce to us what your book's about? Yes, and, yeah, okay. I can do that. I'm also... And what it's called. Uh, for everyone who, who doesn't understand German, there's a, I did a TED talk. It's on, on the TED page mm-hmm. um, where I kind of outlined some of the ideas um, which I picked up on the book. So the book is a joint project between me and a friend, also coming from the thinking that it's a time where we need to, people to get together to work on things together. And we wanted to provide an answer for people facing the climate disaster. And that's why we kind of teamed up because people need to team up these days. And um, so basically what we were thinking of is, so we are in this climate crisis that is basically uber complex. It's too complex for uh, for the way we do politics, for the way we do um we organize our economies and the way we organize societies and the way we organize ourselves as individuals. It's actually, it's too much. So what do we need to do? So we talked about those bits and pieces. And um, what we then did is we um, tried to provide answers for people what to do with this now that is not please cycle more and eat less meat because we know that and there all huge numbers of books who tell people what to do in their everyday life when you want to be more sustainable. But we try to provide answers on what kind of attitude is needed to to deal with this crisis that is both empowering and realistic and hopeful, but also um, angry enough that we have the energy to actually mm-hmm. kickstart what is needed. People ask me a lot of... Um, if I, of, if I'm an optimist or pessimist, what we found as a, as a common ground here is something we call possibilism, which uh, derives from Jakob from Exkul, who is a German Swedish philanthropist, and um, so possibilism is uh, about understanding what's possible, and then also in the next step, and that's crucial, understanding that all that is possible out there will actually only, you know, we, we only that opportunity it is when we take ourselves more seriously and start understanding ourselves as one driving force behind all those possibilities that can become real. We've thought a lot about this and we thought a lot about kind of the moment that created the Paris Agreement that we were involved in and, and if you look back at history, the moments where this kind of possibilism emerges are often quite dark, right? You know, they're, they're moments where it seems really unlikely that you can make the progress. And then that's where people dig in and they find the place where they can hold that like a torch in the darkness, right? We call that stubborn optimism, oh, but okay. it doesn't matter what you call yeah. it, right? But we define it's it in, a, in almost exactly the same way that you yeah. describe oh, your yeah. amazing I term, possibilism, which I totally love. Um, you know... I mean, the suffragette movement, Martin Luther King, all these different moments required this sense of what can I do? How can I have this gritty, determined sense of putting my arc, my hand on the arc of history and improving it? It's it's beautiful. I love the way you describe it. It is. It's actually, I I just had a really interesting conversation about this with someone who told me that um, change, like these tipping points we talk about, emerge, as you said, in the darkest times because this is 
when your your enemies or the other side or wh whatever you want to call it have understood how strong you are mm -hmm. and have started fighting back. Mm -hmm. Right. But that means you've gotten a huge way. Exactly. And yeah. so it means you're almost there. That's <laughs> almost there. And that in the time when it seems the most difficult, this yeah. is when you're ready to, to give in everything because there is no way, there's no other way. Yeah. And I think there's really something to, to think about when in, in these days when it's when it's all really tough. And uh, it's it's easy to think that we are doomed. It, it is, is. It's convenient yeah. even. Yeah. And, and one interesting additional element of that is those moments are tough to live through, but people who live through them always look back on them as a time that was very rich and powerful mm. in their lives. That's true. And I think maybe one job in talking of a crisis of communication and... Uh, um, in, in in the general issue with you know providing hope as well as outrage is um, talking about these tough times, mm. discussing like what does it do to us when it's really hard. Yeah. And um, also in this um, in this book we wrote we we wrote some very it's it's, it's a nonfiction book and it's really like based on science. But what we did in between is we had little sections where we really tried to really tell the story of these moments when we feel there is no way out of this. What does it do to us? Mm. How this hopelessness kind of smashes you, how the burden on your shoulders gets so heavy, how your heart is beating fast and fast and you feel like this. there is no way out of here. Panic. Panic, yes. And we talk about mm -hmm. it and we try to... to, to you know, not get people all depressed, but to make a point of how, how normal this is, how yeah. human it is totally. to live through those moments, but that there's always a light mm. at the end of those moments. Mm. And this is when we, you know, yeah, take all so the energy and all the outrage we, we get from those moments and transform this into, into something that is actually helpful. I call this um, constructive anger mm. um, or constructive anxiety. It's really accepting that moment and, uh, you know, understanding it at one crucial step in this journey. Mm. Well, we, we love those concepts. We love it, we, yeah. We just use different words, but we're absolutely <laughs> aligned. <in here>, <laughs> absolutely. And it just struck me right now that um, that panic, that constructive anger is totally necessary for us to wake up out of the comfort zone. And being in the comfort zone is just as inexcusable as denying climate change. Because, you know, denying climate change is, well, it's completely stupid to deny science and, and in particular to deny what could happen. But being in the comfort zone without doing anything is equally as irresponsible because we're not participating in the solution. So, you know, the anger and the angst that, uh, that wakes you up from that, from that comfort zone and from that complacency is absolutely critical to move you to the next step. But those two extremes of climate denial, as well as denial of the consequences, they're both completely irresponsible. It's so interesting you mentioned that because I feel a lot of people misunderstand the concept of a comfort zone and it seems like there's an inside and the outside of the comfort zone. And the inside is where you hang out and you have a good time and the outside is kind of that the, the, the space where you dip in your toe once in a while and then you get back into right. your, to your safe space. And actually it works differently because, you know, there's a comfort zone and around this is a huge fear zone. 
And it is a fear that, that, that prevents us from leaving our comfort zone. And it's also that fear or panic or anger, whatever you want to call it, that we have to go through to get to exactly. what's outside of that. And yeah. that's growth and that's learning. Yes. Mm. Yes. And this is when you get to the point where you, when you grow, this is where you expand your comfort zone. This is where you, you know, you not have to spend your life outside your comfort zone, fighting every single minute of a day against everything you fear, but it's actively expanding the zone where you're comfortable. And I think that is really about it. And I mean, as we in Davos, we heard um, Donald Trump speaking today and everyone being really like, oh, how can, how dare he do this? How dare he uh, not talk about the climate crisis? How dare he step out of Paris? And I say, yes, it's convenient talking about just that. But I kind of wonder, what about all the other leaders, more than 180 leaders in the world today that are practically stepping out of Paris just now, just this year in 2020, when they knowingly commit to targets that are too low, that are too weak, that are too ineffective. And this is also, that's what... But what, doing it behind the scenes. Doing it saying. behind the scenes while obviously claiming that they will stick to Paris Agreement. And this is what I just, what where I agree so much with you, is we have no, we have no tie, but we also have no no space right now in, in times where we need urgent action for people who stay in their comfort zone as if this was, you know, somewhat, somehow in any way responsible. Yeah. Or normal. Or normal. Yeah, we're totally in abnormality. Yeah. One one of the things we talked about, and it's in a way it's no great insight, but just to to finish on it, that we we were talking about in terms of the history of civil movements mm -hmm. is that They've only been successful in history when the people who rise up and participate are those who are most vulnerable to the outcome. So from the suffragettes to the civil rights movement and with the Fridays for Future movement, that's what you are all doing because it's the young people that are most vulnerable. So it's very inspiring to us. We're very Blessed anger is what I say. <laughs> and we're, we're here to help in any way. Yes, Thank absolutely. You. And one way we can help is to disseminate your book. What is the title of your book? Uh, it's Auf called Deutsch, Auf Deutsch. It's, um, so in, English, in German, it's called Vom Ende der Klimakrise. And uh, yeah, it's uh, really something that's been uh, part of this uh, crazy 2019. And, uh, Fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. Amazing. Congratulations. Having, having just written our book together as a team, we are so in your shoes. We understand <laughs> everything that you've just said. <laughs> And and the uh, and our our book is um, the future we choose surviving the climate crisis because we also believe that we have to get we're not going to solve climate change but we have to get out of the crisis mode. Oh, so I'm so looking when forward is, to that. When is yours coming out in English? <laughs> I will keep you posted on that. Okay, Good. wonderful. <laughs> Louisa, thank you so much. Honestly, it's been fun. It's been educational. It's been inspiring. It's been everything. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What a what a great um, coincidence that we happen to meet on the mountain in yes. the Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't believe in coincidence. I think there's always a reason for things. Oh, I love that. Okay, we stick to that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So um, that was an amazing opportunity to speak to Luisa. Um, what did you guys leave that conversation with? Paul, what did you think hearing that? I'm so impressed with her and her approach. Uh, you know, at the end of the last podcast, I said, you know, uh, business is 
has taken over politics and now politics has to take over business. She is the most accomplished kind of corporate campaigner I've ever come across. First of all, she's empathetic to Siemens' position. That's really clever. Uh, you know, th- just, you know, being totally negative is, is, is the, really the wrong way. She's managed to get CEO engagement because uh, she got an op-ed in a newspaper. I mean, anyone who can get 1.4 million people on the streets uh, is, is capable of, of getting the attention of a corporation. Very interesting that Deutsche Bank and Allianz had stepped back. Um, and very interesting that two Australian companies weren't providing this material themselves. And she spotted, she spotted the logical inconsistencies in the position of the company. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. Um, I know that she'll probably think that she's not succeeded and, and it's still ongoing. Uh, but from my perspective, I think she's she's writing the book on how to engage in a very mature and intelligent way with the corporation on a key issue. She's She's kind of teaching the corporation how to think about its responsibilities. Well, you know, um, I had the opportunity to speak to the CEO of Siemens the day after we spoke to Louisa. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I was first very silent just listening to what he had to say about this, his side of the story. Um, And uh, and then later on, I told him that I had spoken to Louisa and knew the other the other side of the story Um, and without breaking confidence what I was very impressed with is that this is not a closed issue for him. This is still sitting very deep in his soul. It's not easy because there is a contract, as she explained, there's a contract uh, and a very difficult contract that has been signed. Um, and when when he says he didn't know that that contract has been signed, I, I really believe him uh, that he didn't know because that's the way these large companies work, right? You delegate up to a certain level of responsibility to people under you. So um, so it did catch him by surprise, but it's a very good and healthy surprise. And I think although it's only an $18 million uh, contract, it's actually functioning as a fulcrum to really pivot that company um, into thinking about the consistency and coherence of its values and principles. And um, and that's a very powerful way to change things, right? You don't need to you don't need to lift the entire um, issue. You need to find the point at which your leverage is the highest. And that is what she has done. successfully. And it's still, you know, and I think she'll be delighted to know that it's still an ongoing um, challenge for them internally in Siemens. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, the 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 message it sends the the idea of having young people like her sit on boards of major companies which has been offered is transformative right there's not that many ideas that you really think if that was implemented that would really change the world i think that's amazing that she's kind of opened that space and i don't know if that will be a route that the school strikers the fridays for future go down because at some point it needs to pivot to be the protesting and the calling for particular action and then the engaging as well and the supporting that action to come about as and when that's judged to be the right moment. Um, And I think what she's demonstrated there is an incredible ability to, as you said, Paul, to empathize and to engage and to understand, but also be really firm and say, yes, I understand it's difficult. Yes, I know there are contractual things in place, but this is non-negotiable. This is an emergency and we need to behave like it is. So, um, 
I was really impressed with her. Now, in the spirit of correctness for our listeners, the offer that has been made is not the executive board. No, the energy it's board. The, it's the advisory board, not the executive board. It's the advisory board of a new company that Siemens is spinning out that is going to be called Siemens Energy. Yeah. So, you know, just for correctness, in case no, there are any Siemens, um, and, Siemens employees and out there. And do you know, would that company hold the Adani coal mine asset that she's so concerned about? I don't about. know. Okay, because that's an interesting... I, I it's, it's not an not. asset, it's, it's just a technology. A, a contract. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's just it's, a technology, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a rail signaling It's a train thing, it's, it's a yeah. train signaling thing. Yeah. But the, uh, forgive me, but there might be some other things going on here for a minute, um, and I'm sure it, this will have occurred to her. I've got no evidence of this, all right? But, you know, Siemens is a multi, multi-billion dollar company, and there are a lot of big companies interested in that coal mine. And the people behind that coal mine will have friends in the fossil fuel industry around the world. We don't know how much pressure the fossil fuel industry around the world or parts of it or the energy industry may be putting on Siemens. It may be a hundred or a thousand times that 18 million euro contract. So we need to recognize that a company like Siemens with its massive global role is in a, a big political struggle. And, mm -hmm. and that's once again where I, I really appreciate the empathy she was showing. Mm -hmm. hmm. But once those begin to change, right, once if, for example, Siemens were to pull out, it just becomes more and more indefensible, as we saw with companies and investors pulling out of tobacco a generation ago. That will happen. Yeah. And it's better for companies to get ahead of that because that market isn't growing either. You know, that's a static market that is only going to decline. So in a way, if they don't get out of it now, they will still have to get out of it at some point when it becomes much more socially unacceptable. They just won't get the PR benefit for doing so. And that does happen. You know, we, we used to have child labor or whatever. And then one day we decided that wasn't going to be acceptable anymore. And it's not a question about whether it's economic or not. And unfortunately, uh, with climate change being this serious, and unfortunately, uh, with the emissions from coal being such a, a serious part of the problem, a new coal mine does appear to be unacceptable in our society. Well, especially this one, Paul, right? I mean, the Adani coal mine on its own will just blow us through uh, the ceiling for 1.5. So, you know, th there are coal mines and there are coal mines, but this is the mega coal mine. So, so two more tiny compliments. One is her incredible judgment to, to pick out that strategic intervention. Notice how acutely strategic she is. And then the other thing is just that little phrase. It was a throwaway phrase she said, but she said, it is convenient to think we are doomed. And I thought that was mm. a really smart comment. I really admire that. Yeah, that's that. true. Cool. Okay. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Looking forward to next time. Bye. So there you have it, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism, and it's produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Kluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Charlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northup. You can connect with us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Global Optimism. And if you want to shoot us an email, we read them and we respond. Shoot us an email at podcast at globaloptimism.com. Last but not least, it helps us so much if you leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It tells Apple you like us and it helps us get the word out. Okay, we'll see you right back here next week. Bye.